Thanks for joining the Heights Church podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you're in the Sydney area, be sure to join us at the Heights Church at Golston Road, Hornsby Heights, Sydney, Australia. Good morning, church. So reading this morning from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe, them, clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they were destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas, as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realised that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. This is the word of the Lord. The names have been changed, and they reflect no one living at this particular time. Every day, Nicky was, would work on the farm with his brother Sam. They were fortunate because their father was wealthy and as a result they could afford the best equipment that they could have uh, to work the land. They had the McDonald's contract, you know, the ones that make pickles and cucumbers and that youth flick up and stick to the roof. So with this lucrative contract, they lived fairly well. They always had food on the table and an extremely good roof over their heads. But Sam was sick of farming. It was long, demanding work and he dreamed for a better life. 
Sam's father was smart and he knew that, that he was going, uh, wasn't going to live forever. And he also knew that the Australian weather was up and down and unpredictable. So he got together with a financial consultant, Phil, uh, who advised him to invest in an apartment building in Byron Bay. This was going to be his son's security for the farm if it went belly up or he should die. Sam met with his father privately and shared his worries. Dad, I don't want to work the farm. I don't want to work the land anymore. How can I get out? And Sam cried with anguish. His father reluctantly revealed his secret about the Byron Bay property and, and his desire to, for, for, to, to provide a nest egg for, her, for Nikki and himself. Sam thought he could, this could be his opportunity. This could be the, the opportunity to get off the farm. His father, could, his father could see in Sam's eyes the anguish that was going through his mind and his discontent with farm life. So after much negotiation and manipulation, Sam convinced his father to let him manage the apartment building in Byron Bay. And after some preliminary business studies of the Byron Bay area, his father advised Sam that his proposal was doomed to failure. There's nothing but a bunch of hippies up there, he said. Party emeralds with VW combis. One party, one wrong tenant, one James Packer resort, and you'd lose the lot. Sam was determined, so reluctantly his father signed the deeds over to him. Nicky noticed the next day that he seemed to be doing all the work, that his breakfast, breakfast time he was really quiet, and what's more, Sam's budgie wasn't there anymore. He clued in. Sam's not here. Nicky wasn't as smart as Sam. Nicky's father told him all about what happened and, and how Sam took the keys to the Byron Bay apartment and left. He was fuming. He secretly wanted to be a hippie too. But how could he leave the farm and leave all the work to Dad? Nicky worked twice as hard, long, long hours, even through the drought of 92. Well, as for Sam, he arrived at Byron Bay and he was blown away, uh, blown out of the water. Women everywhere. Well, the town, the population of the town that he lived in was only 56. Parties every night and a new kind of farming for a special plant, so special that everyone used to wear a picture of it around on their shirt or paint it on their car or even earrings with it, symbols of it. For some reason, a good crop could yield about 100 times more than cucumbers. So he thought he would spend all of his inheritance, all the money that he had to convert the terrace of the apartment building to a farm of this Queensland gold, so they, they called it. His father would be so proud, he thought. The crop was about ready to harvest. There were many keen buyers for a quick purchase. The next thing you know, however, there was about 400 police and helicopters circling around the apartment building, dogs scratching at the doors, and he was arrested on 104 counts of drug-related offences. Every day in prison, he would dream of the farm, the smell of the barbecue as he dined on the slop that the prison provided. Nicky heard about it, heard about all that went down. His father laid down and wept, but Nicky said, you got what you deserve, wasting your money, uh, money away like that. You can rot for all I care. Every day his father worried about what happens, happened to Sam and wondered whether he ever would return home. Nicky couldn't care less. He was too busy raising his 4-H calf, Bessie, to show at the local show. 
one day about eight years after, his father from the front porch saw this beaten up combi coming down the driveway. Dog Bluey started barking as though he knew who was coming down the road. Sure enough, out of the combi climbed Sam. He came over to his father with his tail between his legs and said to him, can I crash at your pad tonight, Dad? His language had changed over the years. In hippie language, it meant, I'm sorry, I've really messed up. I understand if you give me the boot, but can I stay and work for you? That's what it meant. His father called Nicky and exclaimed, Sam's back. But Nicky just kept on brushing Bessie. Every 4 h calf was called Bessie for all the years. That night, Sam's father threw the biggest barbie that you've ever seen and all the locals came to see. Nicky smelt the barbie but refused to go in. His father, his father came out and, uh, with some, and had some words with him, but he was not going to go in and he wasn't going to forgive Sam. He was going to the barn to work on Bessie for the show the next day. He got there only to find a pink collar on the stall door and the smell of the barbie drifted in and his fists clenched in the rage of injustice. You know the sayings, don't you? What goes around comes around. It all comes out in the wash. In the end, they will get what they... Good things happen to good people. And in the soap opera of life, well, at least on Home and Away... We hold close to a a calmer kind of philosophy of of this world. What goes around comes around. Now, why that might be right for the blatantly evil, they get what they deserve, is quite another matter for a good person or a young person that's laid low. We can legitimately ask questions of fairness and justice. Why did God, if there is a God, allow this awful tragedy to happen to him or her? Why? Hindus balance evil for good. They say it all comes out in the wash. Atheists justify the existence of evil and just say stuff happens. It's all part of nature. It's all part of our world. But Christians, as we're, because we're Christians, we understand that God, the almighty, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the sovereign God is overall. But therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Then why God? Why don't you stop evil? For the Buddhists, that kind of questioning would illustrate my lack of enlightenment. For a Muslim, it would be just about blasphemy. And for the atheist, the question wouldn't even matter. But for the Christian, we're actually given permission to question. The very fact that there's questioning in the Bible indicates that God wants you to dialogue with him. In Bible language, commune with him. And we read it over and over again as Abraham pitched the preservation of Sodom and Gomorrah, as Job questioned his position where he was in life. Even Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the older brother, I called Nicky, in the parable of the lost son, questions. Psalm, uh, David in Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you remain distant? Why Do you ignore my cries for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. So David, as do many today, cry out to God, and that's okay if you cry out to God. The Bible gives you permission to do that. 
It is evident through the Bible examples that God wants you to embrace, God wants to embrace your questions, your cares, your doubts and your worries. It doesn't mean that you've fallen off the rails as a Christian because you ask the question, why? I have a mate who went through horrendous things in his life and got absolutely smashed by an industrial accident that happened to him. Maybe one day he'll come and speak at one of the men's dinners and share his journey of what happened with him. Now, all his life, all his ministry, 100% of his time, he was working for a, uh, an organisation called Misfit Aid and that would build homes for those who were underprivileged, those who had no roof over their head. And he literally gave his life to that and then one day in the accident while he was working on the construction site, he was laid low. We're talking almost dead. And he shared with me about sitting on the beach at... Uh, Newport Beach, because we both lived at Newport, and he cried out to God, why? Why did this happen? Because he could not even focus on reading the paper without losing it after the first line. He was unable to function as a person for many, many months and years after that. And he cried out to God, why? Why did this happen? Wasn't I faithful to you? Wasn't I faithful in mission with you. It's okay to cry out why. And he delved deep into guilt for himself even questioning the goodness of God. The questions, however, get more intense, don't they, when we see the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist knows that God is good and he starts off with that statement. If you're following along from the New Living Translation, he starts off with that statement about God's goodness. Truly, uh, God, truly God is good to, the, to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But what makes the acceptance of trouble, pain and death even more difficult, difficult to get our head around, is when we consider the apparent well-being of the prosper- and the prosperity of the wicked. Millions of blatantly wicked people live in the lap of luxury, oblivious to the troubles around them and without a care in the world. And it appears many times that they prosper. Listen to the psalmist when we, we have from verse 3. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They aren't troubled like other people or plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace. Their clothing woven in cruelty. Their fat cats have everything their hearts could wish for. They scoff and only and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the, the, the earth. Day after day, he notes the, that faithful believers suffer poverty and sickness and pain, whilst the blatant sinners grew rich on the spoils of evil. And it blew his mind, and it should blow our mind too. Just doesn't make sense. Didn't seem to match Deuteronomy 28, blessing and curses for those who are faithful and those who are not. The good were perishing and the evil were flourishing What's wrong, the psalmist says. The psalmist cries out, I almost ditched my faith. 
in verse 2. But as for me, I came close to the edge of my cliff. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone for I envied the proud and I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. As if sinners' prosperity wasn't enough, they grew in fame and in stature. The fame and the influence that they had over other people ground him. The psalmist rightly asked, does God even know what's happening? He says, does God realise what's going on? They asked, does the Most High know anything? Does God know? Can he do anything to stop evil? The evil that's swamping our society? And he spits the dummy. Look at these arrogant people, the psalmist says, laying back in the, back in the fatness of their sin. And like many, he asks, what's the benefit of serving God if they get rich in their prosperity? Was it for nothing that I kept my heart pure, he says, and kept myself from doing wrong? All I get is trouble all the day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had spoken this way, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper and why the dif- uh, what a difficult task it is. And it is a difficult question even for us today. As, then, as, as it was then, it is now. People ponder over why does the wicked prosper. So God, in his mercy, opened up the psalmist's eyes to reveal one of the most important truths that he could ever get his head around in the society that he lived and one of the most important truths that we would need to get our head around in the society that we live in, that what we call prosperity, wealth, fame, possessions, popularity, are not the end of our existence. It's not the place that we get to. It's not the thing that we strive for. It is not our final end. And he says the final end that awaits every person on this earth is judgment. God led the psalmist into his sanctuary, into the very courthouse of the universe, and he gave him a preview of the approaching judgment day. And while terrifying, the lights were turned on as the judgment revealed before him what God was on about in this world, that evil, wicked and injustice will be totally consumed. He writes this, Then one day I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I thought about the destiny of the wicked. Truly you have put them on a slippery path and sent them sliding to the cliff of destruction. And in an instant they are destroyed, swept away by terrors. Their present life is only a dream, that is gone when they awake. When you arise, O Lord, you will make them vanish from this life. We have the confidence, don't we, as the psalmist, that no matter what happens in our world and no matter what happens in our life, that God is surely going to bring judgment and right and proper justice on evil. But while it brings comfort, it is also sobering because All of us have sinned and all of us will be judged. It means the psalmist himself will be judged. It means I will be as you will be. So when we cry out for God to bring justice and right judgment on this earth, we're also asking God to bring judgment and right justice on us 
the psalmist realises this. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute before you. Judgment awaits us all. But not just the evil person, but us all. It's only by his sustaining mercy that he does not judge the whole earth now. I've used this illustration before but I shared, and shared that story about following Hurricane Katrina uh, in 2005. Uh, a pastor called Randy Millett from New Orleans was asked in an interview by my mate, who I was sitting next to at the time, um, uh, on Talkback Radio, is Katrina judgment on New Orleans, God's judgment on New Orleans? And his reply was great. Wrote it down. Just like most of our world, only 100 times magnified, New Orleans had the full measure of sin. God could have rightly judged and judged us all as we all have sinned. I prefer to look at it this way, that God withdrew his hand of mercy. If God is going to be just, he would judge us all. It is only by his mercy that we're spared on this earth, but there will come a time, God says, when all will stand before him, He would not be a just and right judge if he excused some sin and not others. It would not be right. And that's from a pastor whose church was flattened. There wasn't a stick left. It is not right that God's character would be reduced to one only of love, free of justice and judgment. If all we had at Easter time was the cross equated to love, well, then we would miss the main point of the cross and that is God's wrath and judgment was poured upon Jesus so that he might deal rightly with what is wrong in this world and be able to express mercy and forgiveness because the sin had been dealt with. As John Piper put it, at the cross... Anger and judgment of God collides with mercy. Because while God might rightly judge sin, we do recognise he is a God of mercy because he has judged sin and took the sin upon himself. If you have just a cross of love, it's no wonder that people can't see their sin there because they don't recognise what the cross actually stands for. God is merciful and forgiving and just. And because he is just, he punishes sin and took it upon himself on the cross. But he is merciful and offers forgiveness in this world. That is a question, isn't it? How does Nikki stand in the face of judgment, of injustice? And how do we stand in the face of injustice? And that's the rub, isn't it? We accept that God is just, but we stand ready to forgive easy to say, oh, so very difficult to do. You might say, I can't forgive. I can't forgive what's happened to me. I can't just act as though something didn't happen to me that did. But forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't take evil seriously. It means that we do. It means we're determined to name it in our society and call uh, it for what it is and to bring people to justice 
It is right that we should aim to seek justice and promote what is right and proper judgment in our society. It is what we pray for and it is what we ask of our government and the services that they provide will do. But we should be determined, as with the psalmist, to be equally dedicated in not allowing evil to determine the people that we become to be determined that because of evil we don't become bitter, angry people. It doesn't mean that we are just ready to forget what's happened to us, no. Forgive us doesn't mean that we have to say, I don't really mind or it doesn't really matter or pretend like it didn't happen. I do mind, it does matter and it did happen. But we need to be ready for to forgive. not just adjust our attitudes towards something, but ready to forgive. Philip Yancey puts it like this, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. By forgiving, I realise my own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness for God to work out. I leave in God's hands the scales that must be balanced between justice and mercy. God did not pretend that sin didn't exist. In fact, he is so determined to rec- to, to, for us to recognise that sin does exist that he went to the cross to take it upon himself. He's so committed to making it right that he died for our sin. But he offers us mercy and forgiveness and the psalmist realises this in the midst of his pain. He says, I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. There is no doubt that we are promised a redeemed world in the future. And that's the hope that we have, that justice will be served and that God would create a world in which forgiveness is one of the foundation stones and reconciliation is the cement that holds everything together. But you don't have to passively sit back in all of this. You can hear the resolve of the psalmist, can't you? It comes with a right understanding of yourself where you stand with God. It comes with a right understanding of prosperity. We are not called to seek the prosperity of the wicked, but we prosper in the presence of God. We prosper in our salvation and our salvation from our sin. We prosper in the reconciliation that God provides between humans and himself. Does it mean that we seek justice? Absolutely. Does it mean that we're going to look at that next week? Absolutely we are. But personally, our conclusion is this, like the psalmist points out in 27, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, and this is the key verse, take this away with your heart. But as for me, as for you, as for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. The more that we examine the cross, the more that uh, the place where anger and love collides, the more we can accept the right and just judgment of God and how he has decided to deal with the evil and sin of this world. And the more we will realise that we are under the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God, and the more we will be able to forgive others. We'll show up at the barbecue and rejoice with our Father over the few that have come back to him. And as for the rest, which gives us hope too, God is just and a right judge. Let's pray. Lord, I pray specifically now for those who have gone through horrendous things in their life under the evil and sin of others. And there is no doubt, Lord, that all of us can recall how somehow we have fallen prey to a fallen world and fallen humanity and had wrong, have been wronged against. And how hard it is, Lord, to offer forgiveness and to leave the balances of mercy and judgment to you. So I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us that only your Holy Spirit can do, and that is to open up our eyes for where we stand before you and the reason why we can even stand in your presence. And that is because of you taking our sin on you, on the cross, where the wrath of God was poured out on you so that we might have mercy and forgiveness and the strength to be able to forgive others. But Lord, I pray that we just don't sit in this world and watch the world grind against our conscience that the Holy Spirit gives and feel as though we can do nothing, that all we can have is hope for the future, but rather there is action that we can take as Christians. We can promote a better world, and we're told in your word to seek the justice and mercy of this world, uh, of your love. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at that next week, we might be empowered by your Spirit to go out into this world and make a difference under your name. I pray this in your name. Amen.